Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, Saturday, uh, March 26, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was uh, the voice and the music of uh, Letham Bulu from uh, the album entitled Naturally. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story, of course, <clears throat> deals uh, with the current situation in Ukraine and uh, in the western part of the country uh, where many of the uh, refugees uh, have been uh, fleeing the country and where there is a substantial uh, western media presence, Lviv. A Russian rocket struck the western Ukrainian city of Lviv earlier today while President Joe Biden visited neighboring Poland. A reminder uh, that Moscow is willing to strike anywhere in Ukraine despite its claim to be focusing its offensive on the country's east. <clears throat> the back-to-back airstrike shook the city uh, that has become a haven for an estimated 200,000 people who have had uh, to flee their homes. <clears throat> Lviv uh, had been largely spared since the Intervention began, although missiles struck uh, an aircraft 
repair facility near the main airport just one week ago. Among the many who sought refuge in Lviv uh, was Alana Akronets, a 34-year-old IT worker from the northeastern city of Kharkiv. <clears throat> they said, when I came to Lviv, I was sure that all these alarms wouldn't have any results. Ukonets told uh, the Associated Press from a bomb shelter after the blast. Sometimes when I heard them at night, I just stayed in bed. Today, I changed my mind. I should hide here every time. None of the Ukrainian cities are safe now. Uh, the city was home to about 700,000 people before the special military intervention by Russia. Some of the people no longer feel safe uh, in Lviv uh, in, and head uh, to nearby Poland. Uh, Biden uh, met uh, in Poland earlier today with uh, refugees in a show of purported solidarity. So he was in the capital of Warsaw, as far from the Ukrainian border, which is about 45 miles, about 72 kilometers west of Lviv. Lviv also has become a humanitarian staging ground for Ukraine, and the attack could further complicate the already challenging process of sending aid to the rest of the country. And uh, in response uh, to a remark uh, made by United States President uh, Joe Biden, who was in Poland, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has said that it is not for the United States President Joe Biden to decide who should be in power in Russia. That's not for Biden to decide. The president of Russia is elected by Russians. Peskov told uh, the international press earlier today when asked to comment on Biden's words in Warsaw. Earlier in the day, the visiting U.S. president said in his speech in Poland that Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power, unquote. <clears throat> Later, the White House assured that in his speech on Ukraine, Biden had not called for regime change in Ukraine. Uh, the statement said, quote, the president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region, unquote, a White House official said. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change, according to the White House. Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a televised address on February 24th by the heads of the Donbass Republic republics, he had made a decision to carry out a special military operation in order to protect people, quote, who have been suffering from abuse and genocide by Kiev, its regime, for eight years, unquote. The Russian leader stressed that Moscow had no plans for occupying Ukrainian territories, noting uh, that the operation was aimed at the denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. Uh, uh, West, uh, most sweeping sanctions uh, have been issued against uh, the Russian Federation. And in other news, on the African continent, South Sudan's military and the armed opposition forces, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army in opposition, traded multiple accusations uh, just two days ago, each blaming the other for violating a ceasefire agreement in the Upper Nile State counties. The clashes, which started in Marwood County over the weekend between um, March the 19th and the 20th, spread to Logachuk County on Thursday. South Sudan's Army spokesperson, Major General Lal Ra Kuang, claimed the armed opposition led by First Vice President Reich Mashar 
have officially declared the war with the military pointing to attacks in several places. PLAIO is officially at war with the SSPDF, and SSPDF at the general headquarters would like to inform our ranks and files, people of South Sudan, region and the international community that our peace partner, the SPLAIO, is officially at war with the SSPDF, the National Army. Now, this is according to uh, Koang. He said this in a statement announcing an attack to have taken place in Lugashok. On uh, March 24, 2022, at dawn, the SSPDF forces under the command of Major General James Kuo Giat in uh, Malu Don, the SSPDF forces under the command of Major General Kuo Chuaogiat in Malu Mawat. Upper Nile State came under deliberate attack, said Kuang. He added that, quote, the attacking forces are under the overall command of Lieutenant General Duet Yesh. By the time this brief uh, was posted, active combat was ongoing. SSPDF General Headquarters, Bill Palm, will keep you updated. The Army official in a separate statement said armed opposition fighters were also preparing to attack other areas like Pagat, Mawat and Turu. He dismissed reports that the SSPDF carried out attacks on the positions held by the armed opposition fighters, citing verbal threats to declare war on the government forces on many occasions, and they have now actualized. Our forces did not attack, and they are the ones who attacked our forces. This is the actualization of what they have been verbally declaring on many occasions. Today they did it. Time, uh, they have been attacking our forces in Peru, Pagat, and Mawut, but we restrained our forces. They did not act. They declared it by mouth, and they have done it practically today, uh, said Kuang. On Tuesday, the SPLMAIO announced that they would no longer attend security mechanism meetings, saying they were dysfunctional in the implementation of the peace agreement. They said attacks on their forces have continued despite numerous reports to the security mechanism. Wang, however, said they would not dialogue with the SPLAIO if they continue fighting and halt their participation in the security mechanisms. If they want the peace agreement to go ahead, they should stop fighting and attacking our forces in their positions. They should not say they will not attend any meetings for the security mechanisms. So they have closed any means for communications. Now, they have attacked our forces, and if we want to tell them to come so that we can talk so that the war ends, they said they will not attend any meetings, he stressed. For his part, the SPLAIO spokesperson, Colonel Lam Paul Gabriel, denied the allegations, refuting statements from the spokesman of government forces. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, in other news, in uh, the Kenyan countryside, uh, the camel clinics are gaining worldwide attention. Geographic limitations have long hindered efforts by the Kenyan government to provide health services to people in remote areas. To mitigate this, an organization known as the Communities Health Africa Trust, CHAT, 
has stepped in helping to transport medication to remote areas of need using camels. Maryam Shage is a nurse at CHAT. She said that, quote, we are able to provide curative services, we are able to provide family planning services, and to some extent preventive services like deworming. So generally, we are able to provide quite a lot of services, she explained. Their main mission is to assist vulnerable communities to access much-needed medication. Not all the health facilities are able to have community units where the community as volunteers are able to identify patients and refer them to the nearest health facilities. So those are the gaps that CHAT, the Community Health Africa Trust, is able to respond to, said Shigei. And uh, finally, in West Africa, West African leaders yesterday said they would uphold the regional sanctions imposed on Mali in January after its military leaders said they would stay in power for four more years instead of holding an election just this last past February. The regional economic bloc known as ECOWAS made the decision during a summit in Ghana's capital of Accra where they also discussed the situations in other coup-affected member states, including Burkina Faso and Guinea. The sanctions in Mali suspended most commerce and financial aid to the country and included land and air border closures with other countries belonging to ECOWAS. The African Economic and Monetary Union Court on Justice on Thursday ordered the suspension of those sanctions after Mali's leaders filed a legal complaint against them, saying they would severely affect Malians. However, ECOWAS President Jean-Claude Cassie-Brew said after the closed-door meetings that it was the only authority that could lift uh, such sanctions. The sanctions, he said, were imposed and must be respected by all countries in the region. He reiterated that ECOWAS leaders wanted an 18- to 24-month timeline to return the country to civilian rule. After overthrowing Mali's democratically elected president in August of 2020, coup leader Colonel Asimi Guaita had promised to swiftly return the country to democratic rule. Doubts Beatman about his intentions, though, after he effectively launched a second coup nine months later, forcing out the chosen transitional civilian leaders and becoming a military president himself. The junta led by Guaita, uh, which had initially agreed to hold a new election in February, said in January that new elections would instead be held in 2026, giving Guaita four more years in power. The regional leaders yesterday also called for the immediate release of Burkina Faso's former president, Roche Marc Christian Corbore, uh, who has been uh, under house arrest in the capital of Ouagadougou since Burkina Faso's military seized power in a coup in January. The junta has vowed to secure Burkina Faso from growing jihadi violence linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group that killed thousands and displaced more than 1.5 million people. Uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, 
just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. of Irma Thomas, uh, the uh, New Orleans classic uh, rhythm and blues artist uh, with the tune entitled, If You Ever Knew What Love Is. And uh, right now we want to move into a discussion on uh, South Africa and its position in relationship to the Russian special military operations in Ukraine. And of 
course, South Africa has been under tremendous pressure uh, to join the United States position to condemn uh, Moscow. Uh, they have uh, firmly uh, resisted uh, these demands uh, from uh, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House. Uh, let's listen to a discussion that aired uh, earlier this week on channel television in South Africa. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back. Watching the horrors of war emerge in Ukraine over the last month has left many South Africans unsettled by the government's refusal to condemn Russia's military invasion. Instead, South Africa has taken a mediation stand with President Ramaphosa blaming NATO for the war. Since Russia launched its attack on February 24th, President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration has maintained uh, what is described as a neutral position on the escalating crisis in Eastern Europe even though most of the world has condemned it. When 193 nations voted on a resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the United Nations General Assembly on March 2nd, South Africa was part of a minority that abstained from the ballot. Mr. Ramaphosa explained then that South Africa wants to see an end to the war, but it refused to support the resolution because it did not foreground the call for meaningful engagement. Let's listen to a track from the Deputy Minister for International Relations and Cooperation, Candidate Mashego Lamini. Deputy Speaker, South Africa's approach on the Russia-Ukraine matters has been based on the following key principles, which in turn are based on the foreign policy, to expressing deep concern at the violation of the UN Charter and international law, the loss of life, the humanitarian impact, and the forced displacement of people as a result of war in Ukraine, recognizing the armed conflict with no doubt resume in human results in human suffering and destruction, the effect of which will not only affect Ukraine, but also reverberate across the world. No country is immune to the effect of this conflict. As the UN Secretary General has indicated, the conflict will have a huge impact on the global economy in a moment when when we are emerging from COVID-19 pandemic and so many developing countries absolutely need to have space for recovery. South Africa emphasizes respect to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. On the 9th of September 2021, brief leaders have expressed concern at the continuing conflict and violence in the different parts of the world. The British leaders reaffirmed their commitment to the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of states and reiterated that all conflicts must be resolved by peace means and through political and diplomatic effort in line with the international law that is the UN Charter. South Africa continues to support and encourage regional initiatives such as the Minsk Agreement and we welcome the work of the Nomadi Format, the Trilateral Co contact group and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe.
South Africa supports the involvement of the good offices of the UN Secretary General as it could also make a positive contribution in finding a lasting solution to this conflict. Let's speak now to uh, South Africa Bureau Chief uh, Betty Divya, who joins me from uh, Johannesburg virtually. Good morning, Betty. Morning, Larry. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. This is a very unique position, almost standing alone on the African continent, South Africa, uh, still standing by the principles of the fact that someone is your enemy doesn't automatically make the person my enemy. Uh, but that's not completely playing out according to public wishes, is it? Not really. You have those who are diehard supporters of the stance of the ANC-led government. You still have those like the Democratic Alliance, that's the main opposition uh, grouping, uh, party, I mean, uh, who are telling the, the president and his party that they have chosen to stand on the wrong side of history. But I guess it, it will be safe to say that Russia has a very good relationship with South Africa. The support that the Soviet Union gave South Africa at the time that um, the struggle stalwarts were fighting for freedom in the country, and then the renewed friendship that they had post-apartheid. Uh, we, 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 um, for, for three or four days right after the war began in Ukraine, you had both countries celebrating 30 years of their relationship. Here in South Africa, of course, there was condemnation uh, here and there. But I guess, as the minister, uh, Minister Masheko Lamini, had said, part of the speech that she made there, um, she said it's more of a principle thing. As you said, standing by their friends, it cannot be economic because trade with Ukraine and, and, and Russia is much, much lower uh, between both countries, uh, much, much lower compared to trade with. Uh, other the NATO countries. If you're looking at 2021 alone, you have trade export import between both countries uh, standing about 11.7 uh, billion rand, whereas in NATO countries, um, we are looking at 1.1 trillion rand, um, the chunk of that from the US and the UK. So I guess it's more of standing by their friends uh, than, than economic. That debate in Parliament had to, was looking at the, um, the impact, economic impact uh, of, of this. The, the DA spent time talking about it. The DA has been quite a vocal, that's Democratic Alliance, draping the city hall with uh, the, the colors of Ukraine, standing by Ukraine. You've seen pro we've seen small, small protests here and there uh, in support of Ukraine condemning Russia. And we've also seen pro-Russia uh, statements, the EFF actually visited the, the high commission of the ambassador to, to Russia, Ilya Rogachev, you know, uh, declaring their support for Russia, asking the government of South Africa to deepen economic ties with Russia, whereas the, the and, and, and the president also got some criticism for calling. He, on the 10th of March, he called the Russian president talking about uh, the best way to get you know, to calm things down. But he got some criticism in that debate in Parliament saying, why haven't you called the president of, of, um, of Ukraine? Um, one of the ministers defended him saying, don't 
talk about what you don't know. Maybe there's negotiation, you know, behind the scenes that we don't know about. But there, there's so many things going on. It, it's a divided, you have divided opinions regarding this. And there are people who are also saying, what even can South Africa do? Um, uh, uh, African countries don't even have much of a say. And President Ramaphosa has been saying this, talking about the reforms of the UN, saying the UN has to have some more bite and, and um, be able to resolve things uh, through diplomacy, through engagement and negotiation. Of course, uh, if a uh, look back at history, those who take a look back at history will not be surprised at the position that South Africa is taking now. And when they hear you talk about the South African government, uh, you, have, you had praised that by calling it the ANC-led government. The ANC and uh, what was known as the Soviet Union were very, very close. And South Africa had many other friends who were not particularly... Uh, well-liked in the West, the likes of uh, Fidel Castro and Colonel Gaddafi, and they stuck with all those people right on till the end. So this isn't really a surprise, uh, is it, uh, 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 at the level of government? Certainly not. It's not a surprise. The, the Soviet Union was present in South Africa many decades ago, and the relations or relationship went cold, especially when the Soviet Union started uh, supporting the struggle. Uh, when incidents like the Sharpeville massacre, which we uh, commemorated last Monday, you know, happened. So they became the enemy. But things started getting back in 1992 when diplomatic relations, uh, um, 1992, yes, diplomatic relations were restored. You had the official visit of the clerk to, to, to Moscow. You had, uh, who, who can forget the picture of uh, Nelson Mandela and Boris Yeltsin in uh, 1999, I think, when he visited uh, uh, Moscow to endorse the declaration on the principles of friendly relations and partnership. So they are friends, and they're not, um, they're not um, shy to, to say that. Um, Vladimir Putin, as the president of Russia, I think was the very first uh, head of state of Russia to, to visit South Africa too, as well. So they're not, there are many areas where they, they collaborate under BRICS, as the minister has said, under the United Nations, the G20, and, and science as well. Recently, the Omicron study mission, when Omicron was unveiled here in South Africa, they stood by the country as well. So it's, it's the friendship that has, that has come a long way, and they're sticking with that friendship. Finally, uh, before I let you go, Betty, I, I must ask, of course, uh, about the point you raised earlier about mediation efforts. South Africa has emphasized the issue of mediation, that what is important is not condemning one side or praising the other, but mediation to end the conflict. Uh, but in practical terms, beyond the phone call you referred to uh, between uh, the two presidents of Russia and South Africa, uh, what can or what is, is South Africa doing or able to do uh, towards bringing the two parties or the number of parties involved together to resolve this? It is still mediation, talking. That's what they're doing. How much impact that will make is another thing entirely. Uh, and the, and um, the, the Ukrainian... Uh, ambassador in South Africa has said, okay, use your, your le or leverage on your friendship with Russia to do much more 
leverage on that friendship to, of course, they were disappointed with the vote, the voting pattern, um, or the vote of South, or not the abstention of South Africa from that vote at the UN. But they're saying leverage on that to negotiate much more, go deeper, and reach out to both sides to ensure that you draw them together. Probably they're doing that, we don't know yet, but I, we know uh, um, President Ramaphosa is quite uh, a negotiator. So maybe he doesn't want to let out everything that's been done. But we know that they're talking to Russia. How much they're engaging with Ukraine, we don't know yet. Maybe that will come out in a few days to come. And, and going back to that vote, I guess they're also cautious you know, about what happened, the fiasco that happened in Resolution 1973 or 1973 uh, that gave way to that Operation Dawn Odyssey that happened in Libya, where they were talking about negotiations, and the next thing, they voted in favor of a no-fly zone. And you know the implication of having a no-fly zone. Um, that didn't go well. The, the, the government then of President Zuma was criticized at the time. So I, I guess playing in between and sticking with not being uh, not sticking sides because they have relations with both countries is what they're, they're going ahead with. And hopefully uh, they will be able to make a difference. That's hopefully. Thank you very much, uh, Betty, for the, uh, for the update there, and do uh, continue to stay safe. Uh, our Bureau Chief in South Africa, Betty Divia, uh, from Johannesburg. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion uh, from uh, South Africa on uh, the South African government, the ANC government under President Cyril Ramaphosa, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Russian special military operations in Ukraine. We'll be back with more program. Money. 
in my bed between my two white sheets. I can't see and smell nothing but your doggone feet. And I'm through trying to make a man of you. And if you can't bring a job, don't you look for your daily stew. I worked hard from Monday until late Saturday night. And you's a dirty mistreater. You ain't treating me right. And I'm through cooking your stew and beans. And you's a dirty part-hound, dirty in his Welcome back, and uh, that was Lucille Bogan with Pound Hog Blues. And uh, right now we want to move into a discussion of uh, African women's labor uh, during enslavement and the Civil War. Uh, Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andre Gillespie. I'm the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute. And on behalf of the staff and the visiting fellows of JWJI, I'd like to welcome you to today's Race and Difference Colloquium. Uh, On behalf of Emory University, um, I would also like to acknowledge uh, the Muscogee Creek people who lived, worked, and produced knowledge on and nurtured the land where Emory's Oxford and Atlanta campuses are now. In 1821, 15 years before Emory's founding, the Muscogee were forced to relinquish this land we recognize the sustained oppression, land dispossession, and involuntary removals of the Muscogee and Cherokee peoples from Georgia and the Southeast. Emory and the James Weldon Johnson Institute seek to honor the Muscogee Nation and other indigenous caretakers of the land by humbly seeking knowledge of their histories and committing to respectful stewardship of the land. You'll give me one quick moment. I do have a couple of announcements as well um, to share. So first, um, I want to um, acknowledge um, our uh, newest class of James Weldon Johnson Institute undergraduate fellows. These are seniors in Emory College who are writing honors theses on topics related to race and difference. And so this year's fellows are in place and excited um, and, and ready to learn. So I hope they can learn more about them this year. Our fellows this year are Haley Greenstone um, in sociology, Annie Lee in history, Amon Pearson in comparative literature, and Stephanie Zhang in um, philosophy. In addition, this is a, a busy week. Um, I'm going backwards. Um, our first public dialogue in race and difference session will be held uh, this week. Um, it's going to be on Thursday on Zoom. For more information, please look at our website. Our theme for this roundtable discussion is going to be the twin pandemics, COVID and racism. We've put together a wonderful panel of uh, scholars from Emory and from around the country to talk about uh, the racial justice fights uh, that have especially sort of hit their apex within the last year and a half, and as well as the relationship between health disparities and the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. So today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tamika Nunnally to speak to us. Dr. Nunnally is Associate Professor of History at Cornell University. Her research and teaching interests include African-American women's history, slavery, gender, 19th century legal history, digital history, and the American Civil War. Today, she's going to be talking about her book, At the Threshold of Liberty, 
Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C., which was published earlier this year by UNC Press. This book examines women's, African-American women's strategies of self-definition in the context of slavery, fugitivity, courts, schools, streets, and government during the Civil War era. Dr. Nunley has published articles and reviews in the Journal of Southern History, the William and Mary Quarterly, the Journal of American Legal History, and the Journal of the Civil War Era. In addition to being a lifetime member of the Association of Black Women Historians, Nunley serves on the editorial board of Civil War History and on committees for the Society for Historians in the early, of the Early American Republic, the Society of Civil War Historians, and Southern Historical Association. Her current book project is entitled The Demands of Justice, Enslaved Women, Capital Crime, and Clemency in Early Virginia, 1705 to 1865. Her work has been supported by the Andrew Mellon and Woodrow Wilson Foundations, as well as the American Association of University Women. Dr. Nunley earned her undergraduate degree from Miami University um, and her doctoral degree from the University of Virginia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tamika Nunley. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share screen. Um, today I'm going to discuss my book and I'm going to kind of provide a bit of a sampling of what is happening throughout the book. And um, I'm going to start off with an anecdote that begins the book um, because I think it's a really good example of, of self-making. So on August 16th, 1821, Thomas Tingey, Commandant of the Navy Yard, placed a notice in the Daily National Intelligencer of a slave's escape in Washington, D.C. Earlier that week, Surrey, an enslaved woman he owned, walked out of the kitchen in his residence and beyond the wharf into the streets of the district and did not return. By the time the advertisement appeared, Surrey had become Suki Dean, a fugitive within the nation's capital and a free black woman available for hire. Tinji explained in the notice that Suri had changed her name to Suki and that she most likely continued to seek employment as a domestic with a local family, but she soon learned that Tinji had discovered her whereabouts. At this point, Suki Dean disappeared from the available historical record, and yet Suri was henceforth Suki, the person, person she had envisioned, fashioned, and named prior to her escape that summer of 1821. According to census records, Suki had been with the Tingey household since 1790 when the family resided in Philadelphia. By the time of her escape, she was one of six enslaved people forced to serve the Tingey household. Suki's frequent appearance in family correspondence reveals a history of everyday defiance and, more specifically, her plans to wield her own authority over her life. Her escape was the culmination of that history. Tingey's wife, Margaret, had threatened to sell her just before they moved to Washington. According to Margaret, Suki declared her opposition to the move, stating, I won't go anywhere but where I chose a master, and you cannot oblige me. Suki stayed with the family for 20 more years before she decided to leave. Perhaps she decided to remain for 20 years because she was also raising children. We know that Suki bore children within the Tenji household. We know very little, however, about their lives, the conditions of life and work in the household, their social networks within the district, or whether or not they remained with the Tingis after Suki left. What is clear is that their mother maintained very specific ideas about her desired life, identity, and work environment. Suki's own assertion about her choices and obligations developed decades before she escaped. 
At the threshold of liberty tells the story of women like Suki, African-American women and girls who made extraordinary claims to liberty in the nation's capital in ways that reveal how they dare to imagine different lives. From the founding of the capital to the American Civil War, a history emerges of black women and girls, enslaved and free, who developed their own ideas about liberty and accordingly traditions of self-definition that help us understand how they survived and lived in the slaveholding republic. They were driven by the ideals of their time and expressed their desires to govern their own lives without the oversight, force, and violence administered by others. The experiences that unfold show that black women adapted and shifted their lives and the lives of others in the face of unpredictability. Over the course of the first half of the 19th century, black women disentangled themselves from bondage using their understanding of the legal, geographic, and social scaffolds that made slavery possible. Thus, struggles for liberty appeared in various forms and under different conditions in the lives of black women in DC. Women and girls who were legally free navigated social norms organized by black codes and social, local custom, while enslaved women and girls were expected to observe slave codes and respond to the demands of slaveholders. The claims they made, the women they became, the actions they took, and the lives they created made possible the black Washington that became an incubator of equality and citizenship. Slavery shaped the social dynamics of early Washington in important ways. First, the placement of the capital on the Potomac ensured that a culture of Chesapeake slavery formed the legal and social frameworks of the city. Carved out of the oldest slaveholding states in the country, Washington adopted the laws and customs of Maryland and Virginia at its inception. As the population expanded and the capital became more developed with businesses, residences, industries, and the work of government, the district transitioned from village to southern city. Early investment in enslaved women's labor served the purposes of increasing investment in the city and developing social relations in the nation's capital. The symbolic meanings tied to the capital linked the early republic to ideals of liberty and egalitarianism, but an emerging class structure demonstrated that the aspirations of the privileged relied on the subjugation of others. African-American women in early Washington understood that the stratification of society often relegated them to the bottom and that their labor subsequently buoyed the aims of a burgeoning genteel class. Margaret Bayard Smith, wife of the founder of the National Intelligencer and Washington Advertiser Samuel Smith, mingled among the upper crust of Washington society. She was a prominent figure in her own right and authored a number of publications featured in journals that boasted a national readership. Historians rely on the stories and letters that she penned about life in the new capital, but the fact that she relied on a number of enslaved people and servants to run her household is less obvious in Washington histories. In a letter to a friend, she related that, quote, I have had a fine little girl of five years old bound out to me by Dr. Willis. She noted that, quote, while I work, she plays with Julia and keeps her quiet. She is gay, good-tempered, and well-behaved. Julia is extremely fond of her and she of Julia, and I hope to have some comfort in her, end quote. Enslaved girls learned at an early age how to navigate the expectations of upper-class white families. The demands on black girls, white entitlement to deference, and the expectations of positive dispositions indicate ways that slavery shaped their understandings of labor and power. For the five-year-old girl, her gay and good-tempered behavior was not always a matter of choice, but a negotiation she learned early on in her socialization. 
Washington society took shape on the foundations of the racial and gendered power dynamics of slavery as leading women purchased, hired, and sold enslaved women. In Washington, enslaved women's experiences and relationships exposed them to information about various avenues of resistance. Wherever they went, they navigated the city with an accumulated knowledge of the homes, churches, businesses, and people that populated Washington. Their mobility, albeit circumscribed by slave codes, shaped their comprehension of the advantages and risks associated with escape in the area. Just before dawn on December 19, 1815, enslaved people on F Street near a local tavern owned by George Miller. Taverns located in the federal village often functioned as sites of slave auctions and markets that marked the beginning of a grueling trek along key trade routes headed towards the Deep South. The Chesapeake slave trade geographically forced the enslaved further south and west, an intense journey that funneled scores of enslaved and abducted African Americans from Washington. Before the sun appeared on that wintry morning, an enslaved woman named Anne jumped out of a three-story window just above the designated starting point of the slave coffle. The men leading the coffle, however, would have to leave without her. Anne was in no condition to walk with both arms broken and a shattered spine. Quote, I didn't want to go and I jumped out of the window, but I am sorry that I did it, she reportedly confessed. Anne not only lamented the fact that she suffered life-altering injuries, but she remained separated from her husband and children who were sold to the Carolinas. At the risk of her life and in a moment just before the traders prepared to chain her to the other enslaved people in the coffle, she saw only one way out. Anne used what limited power black women possessed at a time when their fate was often determined by a powerful law and the white men and women who employed it. This form of physical intervention changed the course of their lives in a split second and in other instances following years of contemplating an existence beyond chains. Their actions show that the relationships torn apart by the domestic slave trade constituted a vital source of identity and belonging amidst the day-to-day -day drudgery of bondage. These bonds gave life in a place where death and separation loomed as an ever-present possibility. At a time when the nation embarked on a revolutionary political project, enslaved women in Washington envisioned lives that were not defined by the laws of slavery. Many black women during the early history of the capital, however, remained enslaved, even as white Americans expressed discomfort and embarrassment when they witnessed coffles of enslaved people walking past or acts of violence inflicted upon them. Anne's daughters were forced into the very coffle that awaited her, into the hands of the quote-unquote Georgia man or the slave trader known among the enslaved as the notorious agent of their sale, separation, and subjection to violence. The owner of the tavern purchased Anne, and she later gave birth to more children with her husband. Although testimonies indicate that Miller, the owner of the tavern, permitted Anne to go about the city freely, legally she remained enslaved. She petitioned the court for her freedom with legal assistance from Francis Scott Key, a local attorney and author of The Star-Spangled Banner. The litigation of Anne's freedom suit also reminds us that more flexible terms of servitude did not change her desires to be free. He played an important role in enslaved women's local freedom suits. Although he freed seven enslaved persons he owned upon his death, eight remained in bondage. He embodied the contradictions that locals wrestled with as he continued to benefit from slavery while also arguing that free persons possessed the right to the legal protection of their freedom. Slavery itself, however, remained intact. 
The decades following Anne's escape signaled the emergence of the capital as the heart of human trafficking, where enslaved people were collected from the Chesapeake, incarcerated in the capital, and sent further south. More cries could be heard from the growing presence of desolate dens of bondage that appeared throughout the National Mall and along prominent blocks of the city. Indeed, slave trading firms appeared more organized and efficient than ever, and the District of Columbia offered a number of opportunities for participants involved in the business of buying and selling enslaved and abducted black persons. Firms became increasingly vital to life in Washington with establishments located along the National Mall and near the Capitol. Enslaved people were marched to Center Market on Pennsylvania Avenue and sold alongside goods and wares. Slave trader Joseph Neal placed an advertisement where he promised to pay, quote, the highest prices in cash for 150 likely young Negroes of both sexes, families included, end quote. When they were not on the auction block, they were confined in slave pens located in Washington, such as Roby's Tavern. Adjacent to Roby's, a pedestrian might spot an unassuming yellow building owned by William H. Williams, who funneled enslaved people into the infamous Yellow House just before they were forced to go to slave markets along the Mississippi River. Williams recommended that traders bring their enslaved cargo to the building at least a couple of days prior to, the board, uh, prior to boarding the Tribune or the Unca. John Armfield placed a notice that stated, quote, servants are intended to be shipped and will at any time be received for safekeeping at 25 cents per day, end quote. Armfield's firm posted another advertisement that informed slave owners that the ship left the port every 30 days. In addition to providing information about scheduled departures, they hoped to fill those vessels with more enslaved people. The firm placed the following call, quote, persons having likely servants to dispose of will find it to be in their interest to give us a call, as we will give higher prices in cash than any other purchaser who is now or may hereafter come into this market, end quote. Hotels and taverns doubled as accommodations for guests as well as reliable sites of confinement for slave traders in need of temporary quarters for enslaved people. The Southern Hotel was located at the end of King Street when the District of Columbia Territory included Alexandria. One advertisement placed by the hotel offered, quote, comfortable accommodations of travelers with particular provision for gentlemen from the Southern country and for the security and support of their servants, end quote. Lloyd's Tavern, as well as St. Charles Hotel, the United States Hotel, in the courtyards of the Decatur House, the Van Ness House, and the Calorama Home, accommodated slave traders with business ties to Georgia, New Orleans, and slave markets along the Mississippi. The emergence of more professionalized trading firms and the ongoing activity of slave catchers who hunted fugitives and abducted black residents made the district a precarious site of liberty. The legal climate of Washington appeared increasingly hostile to African Americans by the 1830s. Drawing upon earlier laws established in the Chesapeake, slave codes and court cases were adjudicated in ways to ensure that black people were in no position to undermine slavery and the racial hierarchies that shaped social relations in the city. Enslaved women, however, discovered ways around these barriers. They demonstrated an awareness of opportunities for flight, as well as the legal risks associated with fugitivity in the region. This web of legal knowledge not only appears evident in the transportation of fugitive women, but the rumor mill that alerted them of forthcoming opportunities for flight. The escape of 77 enslaved people on the schooner Pearl appears regularly in histories of Washington. The incident not only offers insights into the most notable escape in attempt history, 
but the ways that black women navigated the opportunities for self-making through collective resistance. The daughters of an enslaved mother and a free father, Mary and Emily Edmondson, were two of Paul and Amelia Edmondson's 14 children. Paul was manumitted by his former owner and by, quote, economy, industry, and thrift, end quote, obtained and maintained 40 acres of land. One of the Edmondson sons, Hamilton, had already been sold south, and five of their daughters were manumitted through purchase and resided in Washington. When she was 15 years old, Mary, along with her sister Emily, were hired out by their owner, Rebecca Culver, to work for wealthy families in the district. They likely found moments to interact with their free siblings and soon discovered plans for an escape on the Pearl. Mary and Emily, along with 71 other enslaved women, men, and children, boarded the, boarded the Pearl on April 15, 1848. On the docks of the nation's capital, they joined the largest documented slave escape in American history. Mary and Emily's stories of self-making were tied up in the efforts of others who tried to become free. It all began with Daniel and Mary Bell. Daniel earned enough to purchase his freedom, but his family remained enslaved. Mary Bell and her children were freed according to the terms of their former owner's will. But when they attempted to claim their freedom, the wife of their former owner contested the manumission terms of the will. When the courts failed to produce the desired results, African-Americans did not shy away from extra-legal strategies to become free. With no other option than to arrange an escape, Daniel Bell covered the necessary expenses for Daniel Drayton to secure a vessel that would take them north. The Edmondson sisters also joined the escape because they recently learned that they might be sold off as prostitutes in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. Their experiences with being marketed as both sexualized and fetishized human property marked many of the ways enslaved girls and women were commodified as potential prostitutes or high-end servants in the domestic slave market. Word of mouth reached the girls in time to evade these projections. As one news account noted, someone, quote, communicated the opportunity to them and to several others. They communicated it to their friends. And when Captain Drayton came to sail, instead of having seven passengers, as he had expected, he had 10 times that number, end quote. These were the networks of navigation, enslaved and free African-Americans, local white allies, and Northern friends willing to spread the word, risk discovery, and finance the excursion along the Atlantic seaboard. Networks of communication among enslaved and free black people created a tradition of anti-slavery activism in the capital. Black people such as Daniel Bell and Paul Jennings, a formerly enslaved servant owned by President James Madison, spread the word, informing black locals of the organized attempt on the Pearl. White supporters such as Garrett Smith, William Chaplin, and the ship crew Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English secured a vessel for their transport. The planned route took the schooner 100 miles down the Potomac River and then 125 miles north on the Chesapeake Bay towards the free state of New Jersey. The morning after their departure, reports of missing fugitives erupted in the city. According to John Painter, an enslaved man named Judson Diggs furnished the mob of outraged slave owners with information about the plans for escape. A group of angry slaveholders sailed out on the Salem to find the vessel near Point Lookout in Maryland. Emily and Mary and the 75 enslaved people on board the Pearl were imprisoned, and Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English were tried in the criminal court of the District of Columbia for stealing. English was dismissed largely because he worked as the hired cook and help on the crew and claimed that he didn't completely understand the purpose and intent of the voyage. 
Sayers was acquitted on two counts of slave stealing, but having incurred fines and legal fees amounting to over $10,000, had to remain in jail. Drayton pled guilty for the transportation of slaves outside of the district and was convicted on two counts of slave stealing. Drayton and Sayers were imprisoned due to the hefty fines and legal fees they incurred while on trial, but were later granted a pardon from President Fillmore at the endorsement of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. Slave traders confined the Edmondson siblings at a slave pen in Alexandria in preparation for the voyage to the slave markets in New Orleans. Traders sold their brother Samuel Edmondson in New Orleans, but the remaining siblings ended up returning to Baltimore as a result of a yellow fever outbreak. Philanthropic efforts led to the purchase of Richard Edmondson, who reunited with his wife and children in Baltimore. The slave trading firm undoubtedly regarded sisters Mary and Emily as too lucrative an opportunity to pass on. They held the potential to generate a handsome profit if they sold in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. If the fancy girl trade did not attract buyers, they certainly retained their value as potential servants in some of the wealthier homes of Louisiana. In the meantime, the two sisters were forced to labor as washerwomen and kept in the local prison during the hours in which they were not employed at work. Persistence from their father eventually led to an arrangement with the firm that allowed Paul Edmondson to purchase his daughters at the impressive sum of $2,250. On November 4, 1848, the Edmondson sisters traveled to New York and with the assistance of the Beecher family, they attended the young ladies' preparatory school at Oberlin College. At Oberlin, they began the process of self-making as legally free young women. Education offered both social and economic mobility in preparation for possible careers in teaching. The Edmondson sisters traveled throughout the North to attend abolitionist rallies and protest the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Anti-slavery activism became an important aspect of their new world as free women. But for one of them, the advent of a new season quickly came to an abrupt end. In 1853, after having survived the dramatic developments of the Pearl, Mary died of tuberculosis at the age of 20. Her death led Emily to return to Washington, where she worked with a school for African-American girls and married her husband, Larkin Johnson. They lived in Anacostia, where they became founders of the Hillsdale community and retained close ties to Frederick Douglass. From the founding of the Capitol, black and white Washingtonians began the work of building a robust set of civic, of, of religious, civic, and educational institutions. The vibrant African-American institutions they created made Washington an attractive place for black migration from other southern states. This was of tremendous importance to black women. Free black women and girls faced limited access to economic and social mobility but an education opened up possibilities for a vocation in teaching and participation in social reform. In Washington schools, schools were, places, were spaces in which black girls explored their own ideas, opinions, and values, not only about themselves, but the worlds in which they lived. In their learning, they were steeped in literature, science, theology, reform, and the heated political debates of the 1850s. In Mertilla Minor School for Colored Girls, one student, Marietta Hill, was particularly engrossed in the political affairs of the Union. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed those who settled in the territory to decide whether or not to permit slavery there. Girls like Marietta Hill remained attuned to the latest political debates about slavery, understanding that the fate of the institution shaped the contours of their own experiences in Washington. Hill shared that, quote, sometimes a dark cloud seems to overshadow me, and since the Nebraska bill has passed, the cloud appears thicker and darker, 
And I say, will slavery forever exist, end quote. Slavery seemed to meet no end as Congress went back and forth with one compromise after the next. As long as slavery existed and African Americans lacked equal rights to citizenship, their lives remained circumscribed by severe legal and social parameters. But her resolve remained steadfast and she declared, quote, it shall cease, it shall and must be abolished. I think there will be bloodshed before all can be free. And the question is, are we willing to give up our lives for freedom? Will we die for our people? We may say yes, end quote. Marietta's assessment of the political climate was eerily prophetic. Bloodshed, not just in Kansas, but on Harper's Ferry and eventually Fort Sumter, would usher the Union into war. In the meantime, Minor provided an intellectual environment that made space for the girls to share their thoughts and frustrations as well as their candid opinions about the national state of affairs. Emily Edmondson joined the Minor School as a teacher and likely mentored many of these young girls. They offered critiques that ranged from political events to everyday insults they experienced in Washington. Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims to equality in the capital. Making education accessible to black girls stirred social and political anxieties among white locals concerned with the future of the country. Regarding this school for black girls, the mayor of Washington, Walter Lennox, pleaded that, quote, we cannot tolerate an influence in our midst, which will not only constantly disturb the repose and prosperity of our own community and of the country, but may even rend asunder the union itself, end quote. He appealed to the local government to wield their influence to undermine the work of minor school. Lennox implored that, quote, such a protest it is the duty of our corporate authorities to make. Its beneficent effect may be to persuade the supporters of this scheme to abandon its further prosecution, end quote. Lennox claimed that minor and her students left white residents no choice, warning, quote, the responsibility will be with those who by their own wanton acts of aggression make resistance a necessity and submission an impossibility, end quote. Thus, the mayor of Washington validated the violent responses of white mobs that the girls confronted on a daily basis. Minor school inspired violent retaliatory responses that involved racist and sexist epithets aimed at the girls. One white pedestrian balked at a group of the students and referred to them as impudent hussies, and demanded that the landlady turn out that N-word school or be mobbed, end quote. The man projected a sexualized and wayward representation of them in the broader public to justify their removal. Students' responses to local harassment do not appear in the existing record, but perhaps their thoughts remained in the purview of their private lives. Indeed, historian Darlene Clark Hind explained that the ways that 19th century black women embraced a culture of dissemblance where they protected their inner lives and reactions to sexualized insults. These girls most likely deployed a number of strategies for survival, many exhibited by African-American women within their respective communities. Sources allow us to see that students took seriously the work of learning and regarded such efforts as an indictment of the, of the society that deprived them of the basic privileges afforded their white counterparts. When lectured by the white wife of a clergyman on the importance of being educated according to one's social status, one student, Lizzie, responded, quote, I would rather be learned than be contented and be ignorant. I will be learned. I must be learned. I would not ask this as colored people should not enjoy every right as white people, end quote. Lizzie's commitment to education coalesced with her claims to citizenship. This inextricable connection between learning, enlightenment, and rights underlies the pedagogical project of the minor school. 
Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims of equality and citizenship in the capital. In a context where few girls exercised the privilege of attending private school, and most black girls were expected to serve at the pleasure of white families, the educational achievements of black girls challenged the racial and gender hierarchies of the district. Once they graduated, they made tremendous sacrifices to form their own classrooms. In 1857, Anne Washington, a graduate of Minor's school, opened a school nearby. Sources describe Washington as a woman of refinement with an excellent aptitude for teaching. She gained notoriety for the way she operated her school, quote, with a system and superior judgment, giving universal satisfaction, the number of her pupils being only limited by the size of her room, end quote. The room, located in her mother's home, speaks to the resourcefulness of black women teachers who did not have access to the philanthropic connections that Minor employed. Washington's mother was a washerwoman who made limited income in a labor economy that relegated black women to the bottom of the wage earning spectrum. Sources offer that her mother, quote, a widow woman is a laundress and by her own labor has given her children good advantages, though she had no such advantages herself, end quote. The growth of the free African-American population meant that black women and girls increasingly contended with the limitations of liberty in the nation's capital. Indeed, they navigated social and economic challenges in different ways. Minors' girls were afforded opportunities to attend school, while some girls and women earned a living in the local entrepreneurial, sex, and leisure economies. At the beginning of the war, the Provost Marshal recorded 450 registered body houses and the Evening Star reported 5,000 prostitutes working in Washington City alone, not including the 2,500 women in Georgetown and Alexandria who worked in the wartime sex economy. Although Alexandria retroceded from the district in 1846, the connections to the capital and the close geographic proximity still made prostitution networks within reach to Union soldiers in the capital. Of the overall number of prostitutes in the city, at least a third were characterized as, quote, streetwalkers of a character of unblushing indecency never known before in Washington, end quote. The women arrived in the capital from both southern cities as well as northern metropoles such as New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Poverty brought on by, brought on by the war presented challenges that led women to prostitution. The influx of African-Americans meant an inflated job market and a large number of black women desperate to earn a living. Those looking for jobs or simply eager for any source of income, food, and housing looked to the burgeoning sex economy. The sex and leisure economy of the district converged and clashed with the Union military effort. Police arrested a soldier named Edwin Perry for, quote, associating with colored prostitutes in the fourth ward of the city, end quote. On September 12, 1862, Mary Ann Jackson, a quote-unquote colored nymph, was arrested by military authorities and, a brief, and served a brief stint in jail. Jackson, along with many other black women, were arrested particularly for their solicitations of soldiers during the Civil War. These women interacted intimately with members of the military, whether through transactions of sex, the selling of goods such as liquor, acts of theft, or through disciplinary policing. In this case, military authorities were not only charged with supervising regiments, but disciplining both soldiers and prostitutes to maintain order between the army and local civilians. The sex and leisure economy increased black women's interactions with the Union military and local officials as they visibly and boldly solicited clients near the city center. Black prostitutes repeatedly frequented the jail and court for their disruptive enterprises in the capital. Military encampments, 
or afforded black women opportunities to offer commercialized leisure, sex, and goods, or they might help themselves to the supplies and foodstuffs provided by the government. Accused of stealing military goods, police arrested three black prostitutes, Josephine Picton, Elizabeth Wilson, and Sarah Gonis together for possessing property belonging to the military. Similarly, police arrested Annie Grant for robbing a drunken soldier of 50, 50 cents. Black women prostitutes seized various opportunities for financial and material gain, capitalizing on the resources of the military and enlisted soldiers. These modes of improvisation meant that some women might resort to theft to avoid sexual encounters, or in instances where clients refused to pay. From police arrests to organized raids, black women emerged as participants in, the lo in local crime and vice. A register kept by officials featured 12 quote-unquote colored body houses with addresses that were difficult to decipher because of their location among hidden alley communities. Residential blocks in 19th century Washington typically included streets within the block that formed a P or H shape. More noticeable structures face outward towards the street, but behind the houses and buildings, inhabitants, particularly those associated with the quote-unquote lower classes, lived and congregated in the smaller configurations of the alleys. The alley streets typically measured 30 feet wide, and structures stood within much closer proximity to adjacent buildings. While solicitation occurred near Union military camps and along main thoroughfares with high foot traffic, the quarters in which sex and leisure took place existed beyond the prominent avenues and into the alleys where makeshift structures occupied by black inhabitants remained out of sight. For instance, Mrs. Seal Brown and Theodosia Herbert, Rebecca Gaunt, Sarah Wallace, and Josephine Webster appeared in the register with establishments located in the alleys. Union officials struggled to maintain oversight of the whereabouts of prostitutes because of the hidden geography of sex and leisure. Those engaged in underground economies and those seeking refuge during the war created an overlapping demographic crisis for the nation's capital. While entrepreneurial economies shaped the dynamics of improvisation and self-making of free women working in Washington, that same spirit of improvisation and self-making translated into the efforts of enslaved women who crossed the borders of the district and made direct appeals to the federal government. For bondwomen, emancipation and the prospects of new opportunities for self-making were on the horizon. On December 16, 1862, Emmeline Wedge filed petitions on behalf of herself and her two children and her sister Alice Thomas who were all enslaved on the property belonging to Alexander McCormick. McCormick refused to take advantage of the compensation provision of the new law the year it took effect in Washington, D.C., and Emmeline saw an opportunity. He reluctantly appeared before the clerk of the court after receipt of a summons. According to court records, McCormick, quote, denied the constitutionality of the Emancipation Act and said that he would bide his time until it was declared unconstitutional, end quote. Besides, he was a citizen with rights to property, and why would anyone take seriously claims made by an enslaved woman? Just before his case was decided, McCormick reappeared before the clerk and commissioners of the district, and for the first time formally contended with Emmeline's liberty claim. In this case, emancipation threatened the property rights of slaveholders and excluded white residents more generally from any democratic processes that decided the fate of slavery in Washington. Ideas about liberty and bondage were inextricably tied to place, and Washington was changing. African-American women like Wedge assumed a new role, not completely carved out for them, but with anticipation and even hope for what could be. 
Working in Wedge's favor was the fact that Congress abolished slavery in the District of Columbia in 1862. For black Washington, the years of waiting for Congress to exercise such power ended at the beginning of the Civil War in spite of arguments against the constitutionality of local emancipation. With the exodus of a strong contingent of Democrats from following Lincoln's election, the Republican-dominated legislative body passed the measure with votes at 29 to 13 in the Senate and 92 to 38 in the House. Although the bill passed by a significant margin, the opposing votes underscore an underlying truth about this era. Historically, white Americans expressed hostility toward the idea of black liberty in both antebellum and wartime shifts towards emancipation. Scholars have pointed to the rehearsals of gradual emancipations in the North and prevailing attitudes against racial equality. While many Americans embraced the prospect of ridding themselves of slavery, the manifestations of black women's self-making in times of emancipation placed them at odds with dissenters who expressed concerns over equality, quote-unquote amalgamation, and citizenship. This sentiment rang true for white locals in Washington. The Emancipation Bill made provisions for compensation to slaveholders to the tune of $300, along with a financial incentive set at $100 for former slaves to relocate to another country. Still, even as some African Americans entertained the possibility of colonization, they decisively charted their course in the Union and remained in the capital. Accordingly, this marked the moment that white locals in Washington dreaded most. It might appear that the struggle for liberty ended with local emancipation, but Washington was the citadel of the Union, and what applied to those enslaved in the city in 1862 sent signals to enslaved people and slaveholders alike throughout the geographic region. For most of the country, slavery and the fugitive slave law prevailed, but slaveholders still felt threatened by what they saw happening in Washington. When Congress legally authorized the emancipation of a population of roughly 3,000 or so enslaved people, countless others took advantage of the measure. White Washingtonians braced themselves for a tidal wave of refugees. Black women, both refugees and recently freed, recognized an, an important opportunity. The facts of Emmeline Wedge's case reveal the unique geographic position of Washington and the neighboring Chesapeake counties as a distinctive geopolitical battleground over liberty during the Civil War. As an enslaved woman, Wedge challenged both the legal validity of her enslavement and forced McCormick to contend with her testimony against him. The Supplemental Act, passed in the summer of 1862, permitted enslaved women in the District of Columbia to testify against white men and women for the first time. Regarding the actual case, evidence showed that McCormick's farm was located along the border dividing the district from Maryland, and that just one day after the Emancipation Act became law, he instructed the slaves to reside on the Maryland side of his property. According to the records of the Board of Commissioners, he built a small tenement for them on the Maryland side, while his main living quarters remained in the district, along with the cow pen and other buildings included on the homestead. While McCormick generally prohibited enslaved people from traveling to the district side of the property, it was proven that Alice was, quote, required to drive cattle from the pasture to the cow pen, which was located on the district side, end quote. Unidentified witnesses also testified that they had seen the women and children in McCormick's Washington home daily, and that for approximately seven or eight weeks, Emmeline and her family had resided in the district with an older man also bearing the last name Wedge, who was identified as the father of Emmeline's husband. The Board of Commissioners ultimately acknowledged Emmeline's right to claim freedom under the Emancipation Act of 1862. 
Emmeline's case is illuminating because, among other things, Emmeline's husband and father-in-law did not file the, the petition, but she instead took the initiative to make her own liberty claims. But this was not unusual. In her work on gender and the political dynamics of Reconstruction, Laura Edwards argues that, quote, African-American and common white women formed a loud, visible, and vigorous public presence both during and after the Civil War, end quote. Patriarchy did not always feature prominently in black women's quest for self-making or liberty. To the contrary, freed women in the moment of local emancipation filed numerous claims and complaints on behalf of themselves and members of their families, initiating the transition of entire families into liberty rather than wait on the authority of men to do so. Throughout the course of wartime emancipation, refugee women and freed women navigated the power dynamics that made liberty possible in order to secure it for themselves and their kin. Former bondwomen employed their knowledge of the geographic and political significance of Washington as they approached officials of the government to make their claims. These experiences were distinctive in how they transformed their own futures as well as the significance of the nation's capital as a site of liberty. For, liberty, for these women, liberty was the work of self-making. The legal and extra-legal steps they took to realize liberty set in motion an array of claims to their lives and labors that challenged their racial and gendered exclusions. The stories of these women do not fit into neat historiographical themes, but show the rather complicated and unanticipated directions in which their lives took shape. The experiences of black women offer insights into the ways that our assumptions prevent us from fully understanding the scope of liberty's reach and its deficiencies. We risk forgetting that these women thought about this idea repeatedly, even as they imagined, washed, cried, ironed, hummed, cooked, laughed, nursed, and suffered. For centuries, the liberation struggle spanning generations and reaching back before the country's founding shaped the Black American experience. The contagious yearning for liberty that shaped the hopes of millions did not simply appear because a government or society allowed it to. Furthermore, the tensions created by those deprived of it play an equally important role to the manifestations of liberty in the nation. This history of black women tells a story about the obstacles that come with the ways that slavery, race, and gender posed barriers to liberty and the manner in which black women and girls in Washington responded. Liberty then remained an ongoing work in progress. Thank you. Thank you very much for a great talk. Um, now is our time for a Q&A. Um, if you are new to the colloquium, we can use the Q&A function in the Zoom webinar feature to allow us to um, ask questions, and I'll just read your question to Professor Nunley. So our first question is from Edgar Randolph, who asks, could you speak to the need to be rational and intelligent in order to use networks of navigation rather than emotional or feeling? How is Washington both a place of opportunity as well as danger? And uh, what were enslaved and abducted Black people in Washington? Um, so I'll start with the last one. Um, enslaved people were people who were legally enslaved and abducted um, were um, abducted persons were persons who were legally free but who were still um, funneled into the domestic slave trade. Um, and so I, of course, you know, enslaved people are, are all abducted, right? And so using that specific term is really just to accommodate the legal definitions of that time, but not, not to sort of uh, distinguish enslaved people from being abducted themselves. Um, and in terms of your question about um, rational and, and intelligent, um, 
I think that um, I, I don't talk a lot about um, enslaved women being um, rational because I, I think that gets into some epistemological territory where you have to be specific about who gets to define what is rational. Um, but I do think that um, they are purveyors of knowledge um, in ways that are really important uh, and, and really decisive in how they approach their strategies for survival um, and, and self-making. I think that feelings, intelligence, knowledge, all of those things, emotions, all play into the decisions of these women to um, embark on the journey that they've created, right, and that they've decided to take. Um, and it looks different, you know, for other for other women, um, but it just depends on the context. Some women, right, are violently pursued um, by certain enslavers um, in ways that cause them to escape without ever having to plan that escape, right? But then there are some who, you know, contemplate it you know, over many, many years and, and decide to act upon it. Thank you. Are there other questions? I don't know if this extends beyond the period in which you study, mm -hmm. um, but how does the agency that you see in the people that you're studying manifest uh, post-emancipation. So how are your subjects uh, uh, contributing to, 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 to black life in D.C. and sort of using some of the skills that they have kind of beyond, uh, beyond what you were able to share with us today? You know, I think um, I, don't, I don't really go past um, the Civil War, but if I were to think about the immediate, you know, um, post-D.C. emancipation moment, I think that there are an array of responses. You know, first there's the woman on the cover of the book, Elizabeth Keckley, who um, organizes women at church at 15th Street, you know, and, and they're, you know, gathering funds, gathering resources to support um, the refugee um, women, men, children um, who are coming into the Capitol. And so I think that the instinct to organize and to mobilize resources is very much present. And I think that has less to do with post-emancipation. It has more to do with the kinds of organizing that black women were doing um, well at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, so in some ways, they rose to the to an occasion that they, they were hoping would, would happen, right, would, un, would manifest. Um, but those, um, that, those institutional frameworks for organizing were already put in place in D.C., which makes D.C. a really fascinating place, right, because they're, the, they're creating these institutions at a time where um, D.C. is becoming, you know, a really important place for the domestic slave trade. Um, and then also if you're thinking about um, refugee women, um, what I think is really interesting is that once it becomes clear that the Emancipation Act is passed, um, that they feel as though they have a direct relationship with the government now, right? And so this, it's this very interesting political interpretation of the social contract. Um, and so they make their way to the nation's capital um, because they expect to be able to get a hold of the president or get a hold of the government, right? Um, whatever the government might look like, you know, whether it's the Board of Commissioners or, you know, eventually later in the war, um, the, um, the Freedmen's Bureau right after the war. Um, and so they look for formal channels um, to begin to articulate, you know, um, their claims and to secure um, their own freedom and the freedom of loved ones. 
um, they come up against the courts as well um, because many of the um, slaveholders in the Chesapeake are um, making claims to their children. Um, they're claiming that these children are orphans, right, or that their parents are not uh, equipped to be able to parent them. Um, and so they're coming up against the courts as well. And so I find what I found surprising was just um, just that kind of that push to um, make a direct sort of uh, line between themselves and the government to establish that relationship more formally was something that was important to um, to people regardless of you know where they were prior to the war you know if they weren't Elizabeth Keckley and they were you know formerly enslaved woman coming in from Virginia the instinct was to get to DC right and um, to get connected um, but then there are some folks who actually um, go into the sex and leisure economy. They go into these underground economies because they need to eat, right? And they need to find a place to lay their heads. Um, and so I think um, the earlier question talked about Washington, D.C. as a site of danger and a site of opportunity. And I think that, um, you know, as much as, right, there's it, this excitement about emancipation and, and these hopes that when you get to D.C., that um, that that will automatically apply to you. There's also the the, the scarcity created by the war. There's poverty, um, and there is danger um, in entering either the sex and leisure, you know, uh, commerce, or you know, just trying to survive, right? Um, because they're still being policed, and they're being policed by Union soldiers and local local folks. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This question is from Sherry Mackinson. Sherry Mackinson, excuse me. Can you talk more about the sex and leisure economy and black women's choices to engage in this economy to make ends meet? How mm -hmm. does that relate to still being enslaved? I'm also thinking of how contemporary anti-sex trafficking efforts use the language of modern day slavery. Mm. That's a very interesting question. It's So it's, you know, Sometimes, the, you know, the way that we write and think about black women's history, you know, it really is about the sources. Um, and, you know, I argue in the book that, you know, to exclude, you know, black women engaged in the sex and leisure economies would, would render them generically absent because they, they were everywhere, um, particularly before the war, you know, and then, of course, during the war. Um, and what that really tells us is about, you know, the social, the economic mobility of black women, what is available to them, what is possible um, for them in order to survive. Um, the question that I had, um, uh, you know, with the book was, if black, women, once, if black women ever become free, then what? What do you do? You know, does everybody become Elizabeth Keckley? Does everybody become, you know, uh, this black woman organizer, you know, who's mobilizing her politics and, you know, fighting for abolition and, and women's suffrage? And the truth of the matter is that the majority of black women are not doing that. Um, they're trying to survive. Um, and some of them actually find um, ways to um, have very, very lucrative um, enterprises. Um, and they can range from um, having, um, having, having, you know, just working on your own to having establishments where there's lots of women working under your charge. Um, there are some that um, are kind of parlor style that give sort of a particular kind of class experience, particularly to high paying clients. There are some, you know, black women who just are renting out their room, you know, and, and this, is, this is what's fascinating and why it's important to center the stories of these women. Some women are going to church and then they're coming back and opening up their house for whatever, you know, the sex and leisure economy is willing to pay, right? And so it really complicates 
how we think about the lives of uh, the economic lives in particular in, in particular of black women and for some it's a short-term strategy and for some it's a long-term strategy and for those for whom it is a long-term strategy they find it to be they find it to be lucrative right and so um i, I think it it tells us that the path for black women once they secured legal freedom particularly before the war um meant that there were very very narrow, limited options available to them. And so sex work became common. Um, and it became common among white women as well. If you were a single white woman, you know, what were the paths that you could take? But for black women in particular, right, um, they experienced this, this tight, um, this, this very narrow um, path to uh, mobility and survival. Thank you. This is another question from Edgar Randolph. How was language used in the marginal setting of Washington? Servants in the North were servants um, or employees. Southern servants were slaves, not servants. Where, mm -hmm. do, where do Washingtonians fit in? I think it's interesting because um, many, many people, um, many, I saw particularly in the records I looked at, um, Elite white people like to refer to enslaved people as servants, um, right? And I don't know if it was this kind of, like this kind of aristocratic or, you know, genteel sensibility that would, you know, prevent them from saying slave um, as much. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things the book looks at is how this sort of parallel um, development of there's an emerging white class um, particularly steeped in politics and power in D.C. And alongside that, right, are the enslaved people who help, you know, who are supporting that image through their labor, right? And um, and so some people use the, the word servants. And, and it was interesting, you know, when I read um, the piece about um, the slave trading firms, you know, their advertisements, you know, would say, well, how's your servants very comfortably, right? Um, and so it's it's very interesting um, to see that kind of, um, that language being used interchangeably while also being applied to, you know, people who are coming from the North and even, you know, uh, European immigrants who serve as uh, servants as well. Um, that, that distinction isn't always made clear, um, but it's certainly made clear um, when you're looking at bills of sale, right, and you're looking at economic matters. Thank you. I want to see if there are any more questions. I don't see any, so I'll give it a couple more seconds. Thanks, Dr. Um, Nunley, for a wonderful presentation. Actually, it looks like we've got two more real quick, so I'll get okay. out my <laughs> Oh, just thank you. So these are our oh, thanks thank that are coming you. from the audience. <laughs> so we really, really appreciate it. So um, thank you. We really appreciate it. I wish you could hear the applause. It was a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> talk. Uh, we hope for everyone in the audience that you can come back next week. Um, our speaker will be Richard Bowles from Oklahoma State University. Um, and uh, then I also want to remind people of our upcoming program. So please, hopefully, you can join us uh, this Thursday at 6 p.m. for our public dialogue in race and difference on the twin pandemics of COVID and racism. So thank you. I hope you have a great week, and we will see you later this week or next week. Have a great day. Welcome back, and uh, that was a very interesting and enlightening discussion on uh, African women labor uh, in Washington, D.C., during the period of enslavement and uh, the United States Civil War. 
We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with our concluding segment. Detroit's own Aretha Franklin uh, from a release uh, 55 years ago uh, this month, uh, her first album with Atlantic Records, I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And we're going to go into our concluding segment, uh, which includes a panel discussion by African-American women over a radio station in 1968. Uh, Quite interesting to look back and see some of the perspectives in existence at the time and the relationship uh, to those views to what is happening today uh, in the third decade of the 21st century. Let's listen in. Today, the subject here is the role of the black woman in America. And there is a small panel to discuss the topic consisting of Peachy Brooks, who was a housewife, a mother of five, born in Virginia, but living in New York for the past 13 years. She lives in Brownsville in Brooklyn, 
and she's been on welfare for the past two years. Also, there is Verda Smart Grosvenor, who is also a mother. She's attended Temple University and the Sorbonne. Born in South Carolina, she's lived in Philadelphia, New York, and Paris. And there is Florence Kennedy, an attorney who was a delegate to the National Conference on Black Power last year. She is now the director of Media Workshop and a member of the steering committee of the Freedom and Peace Party. And Mrs. Eleanor Norton, who attended Antioch and Yale University. For the past two and a half years, she's been an assistant legal director at the American Civil Liberties Union National Office in New York City. I think uh, it might be helpful if we could uh, perhaps uh, deal initially with a kind of definition of the American Negro or black woman. Uh, I would like, if we could, for a minute, to deal with uh, those kinds of myths that uh, uh, have to do with the definition we work with, but are perhaps not as true as they they should be. Can anyone uh, talk about that? Well, firstly, Ed Cumberbatch, you make us sound so fascinating, I can hardly <laughs> wait to hear what we're going to say. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, any time we talk about the black woman, you know, we're stepping into a big trap because we don't know if we're talking about Fannie Lou Hamer or... Ruby D or uh, whatever. So I suppose we must concede that we're talking at a very high level of abstraction and that, you know, we will come down from that high level from time to time as we talk about specifics. Now, of course, uh, there are lots of myths and some of them we are caught up by ourselves. Of course, uh, we like the one, some of us, uh, that says that uh, the role of the black woman is, is very different now, that the men have the starring role, and uh, that we are to be sorry for anything we ever did to lead the way to anywhere. And I think that this is a very big scene uh, among some of the very um, uh, African-oriented uh, black people here in, in New York. And uh, I think that it's it's quite fascinating, and I love seeing the girls being nice and quiet and hardly ever interrupting or anything. You know, at my age, I just battle on and on. And these cool little <laughs> girls sit there in their afros, you know, and they just don't say anything. And the men say, we are it, and you'll have as many babies as we want you to, and you're not going to have any birth control or abortions. And it's quite fascinating because I come from the old line, you know, where uh, the whole idea was that women were going to, you know, take over and, and have freedom and that we were an oppressed group. So women my age, that is over 50, uh, are very big on the freedom for women kick, while younger black women and many of the most political ones are sort of taking the uh, let's let the men go ahead now attitude. So I like to hear the younger ones tell how they like that new role. How about you, Eleanor? You know, I, I do think it, it catches us in a, in a paradox uh, uh, be, because uh, it, it would be somewhat ironic when you know, sort of black people as a whole are, are beginning to express themselves uh, if, if the women um, sort of phase themselves uh, out. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a 
kind of, of real identity crisis for black women. Everyone knows it's one for, for black men, but uh, as black women search for a, a kind of new role in what for many of them is a, is a revolutionary period, um, uh, I think that there is the dilemma created by whether or not to conform with the old cliché or the new cliché, the superactive woman or the underactive woman. Uh, and I, I feel that probably for a, a period of time there will be a reaction against the old stereotype. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not even sure the old stereotype really existed. I'm saying there may be a feeling on the part of young black women that they have to at least act as if the stereotype did exist once, uh, take it as a given, and react against it by becoming kind of super feminine women who who uh, don't exist. I think that the kind I think what there is that's going against that is, that perhaps will will uh, be a counterbalancing uh, force for for black women in this regard is that they are also becoming very political. And it's if if you're going to be very political, you're going to have to have ideas. And if you have ideas, you're going to have to uh, express them at some point. And it, it may be this this new role too that 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 that, that uh, brings black women into some sort of uh, uh, reconciliation with themselves. Do do you is there a problem of identifying with uh, with sex versus race at all? With 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 oneself as a black person versus oneself as a woman. Exactly. Uh, I I I think there is. Uh, uh, in, in, in this sense, um, you, you belong to two, two different kinds of groups that have two different kinds of, of problems. Both groups think they're in motion uh, at this time. Black women, uh, women think they're in motion. You have the whole thing going on of, of white, white women, for example, reacting against the role they played in the 50s, which is a rather absurd one from my point of view. They sort of went into a security thing. Uh, uh, so, so you have sort of activism, active kind of feminism coming back into vogue again, and, and you clearly have the, the black thing uh, raising raising its head. And if one happens to be both black and a woman, one has to come to grips with these two things and decide how one's going to uh, uh, react. One may decide to react to neither, or, or one may find one of these things pulling at at, at oneself harder than the other. Verda. Mm. Uh, well, I just want to say that I don't. I mean, I don't understand what you mean by the role. I think that black women have traditionally always come out of a very natural kind of thing, and they haven't been playing any kind of roles. And they've just done what they've had to do to take care of business. You know, I think this Monaghan report has psyched everybody out, and everybody's trying to figure out, you know, from the Monaghan report, like <clears throat> uh, when you say that uh, the castration of the man or... Uh, their role, the women are keeping quiet now. I, I'm not. I'm not interested in all that because I think that the Monaghan report is, uh, you know, just another one of those things that um, this lace curtain or shanty Irishman. I can't let him dis define for our people what we are about because in the Depression, when white folks were jumping out of windows, black women were raising ten. 15 children doing the best they can out of a very natural kind of thing and Monaghan uh, I don't know where he was at you know 
But now all of a sudden, in 1960, uh, well, 1967 it came out, we're going to let this man say that black women are the cause of black men being castrated. It's not true. It's just like with the educational thing. They have the children believing that there's something wrong with the children, why they're not learning. It is not. It is white folks' fault that children aren't learning. It is white folks' fault that the black men were castrated. It is white folks' fault that we are in this dilemma. Dilemma? Well, the, the, the moment, though, uh, allows not... for a, uh, a luxury of dealing with the role of the black women in America, which is really not, in, 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 we're not talking about the immediate situation, we're talking about a future, uh, right. which, which may not have existed before, and I think you're talking about that. But no, but extent. I mean, you're talking, you say, uh, ro uh, it didn't exist before, black women, I mean, they've always done what they've had to, they've existed since black people were brought here. This Has this been a successful existence? Well, now look at you, your mama brought you here. I mean, how can you say, was it successful? I think that, on the other hand, we ought to give a whole lot of laurels to black women. It's not, white women's Why? roles were not just ridiculous in the 1950s. They've always played a ridiculous role. Black women have been very, you know, all the things that they make negative about, or stereo, talking about stereotypes about black women, are really strange. Like, they've been very strong. Well, what are you talking about precisely? Well, I'm talking about the, when you, some stereotypes that black women are too strong. You see. Is that a stereotype? Oh, yes. Well, Don't you think that men entertain it, though, as well, and black men as well? Entertain the, 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 the notion, this myth. Because, you know, we yeah. can't continue to be as oppressed as we are and talk as if there's so many laurels due us. Now, regardless of whose fault it is, the fact remains that many, many black people can't get up off the ground. And what everybody ought to do, in my book, is to die fighting. And to well, the extent black women kept black men from fighting, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they played a role, and I call it a role, because regardless of whether it's an artificial posture, it is a role. And as far as Monaghan and his little hustle, this is a favorite hustle for white people to write about black people and try to rationalize the system of oppression yeah, I wish I and to speak that. for the oppressor. Right. So, I mean, it's going to get yes. a lot worse because all the colleges are doing that's right. But a girl like Peachy, who rears five kids and sits up here with her little slim waistline, obviously, <laughs> has been, you know, taking care of business. Yeah. But we have permitted our people to be oppressed. So to that extent, everybody that's oppressed is to blame, because you can't blame an exploiter. You, you've got to blame the person that consents to the oppression. That's and right. I think many a black woman has held her man back from taking a gun, blowing somebody's brains out, whose brains, if they had any needed blowing out. Uh, Peachy uh, Brooks, do you see yourself as, oppressed, as an oppressed woman or as an oppressed black person or as an oppressed black woman? Uh, well, I see myself as um, an oppressed black woman. I have my five children to raise. I try to do that to the best of my knowledge, the best way I know how. They go to practically an all-white school. All the teachers, that is, are practically all-white. All my children have all-white teachers. But don't you think that um, in your circumstances, had somebody before you taken care of business in an appropriate way, 
we would have an equitable share of a gross national product, which I think now is well over $850 billion. Now, you don't surely feel that it's equitable for people who are millionaires not to pay one cent of taxes and then complain about people who are on welfare who mm. just can barely make out and, you know, feed their families mm. properly. Now, we hear that the people on welfare are somehow to blame for the circumstances. Uh, for example, the situation in the cities, as they like to talk about, the dilemma of how to keep black people from, you know, taking down the cities, you see. And we somehow are always put in the position of being the wrongdoers. They make it sound like it's such a kick yeah. to be on welfare. Yeah. And half the yeah. time, you're not even getting what you're entitled you're to. You're right about that. And in the meantime, the few people who do pay taxes, and almost all of them are poor people, do not get any uh, kind of deduction that's comparable to the 27.5% oil depletion allowance. So mm -hmm. what really happens is that working black people are supporting industry, you see. And then the people who aren't permitted to work because the jobs are not made available to them are then put in the position of being wrongdoers somehow and being lucky because they don't have to work, mm -hmm. you see. And I really think that the, the uh, unionization and organization of welfare, women, by women usually, is a very exciting thing. When we were in Boston, you know, in Roxbury, the, the organization of uh, Mothers for Adequate Welfare that was called MAW was a very thrilling sight because it turned out that they were not getting the pittances that they were supposed to get, such as, you know, a little bit of money when a kid is going to graduate or a little bit of money at Christmas time and That's this sort of true. thing. All right. What, what is there about American black women that the country really doesn't know anything about? Uh, this was my original question, really. Uh, what are the myths that exist that uh, make an understanding, a comprehension so difficult? At well, this time, when there is such change in the society. Well, first place, I think I agree with Eileen Norton that there is not such change. I think she implied that when she said we like to think of ourselves as in motion. I think there is very, very little change, and which change there is, I believe, is in retrograde, which means that we're losing ground a little bit. Because, you see, the black people are at a lower level, and they are required to stay at that level. And anytime anybody talks about equality, when I'm 10 or 15 or 20 levels below somebody else, it just means that I will be maintained at that level, mm -hmm. and whatever slippage I've experienced uh, is not uh, going to be allowed to continue. Now, as to your question about what America doesn't understand about black people, you see, a system of oppression as I see it, and this is what I think we're talking about, and it applies both to women and to black people, men and women, requires the consent of the oppressed. And this is something that both oppressors and oppressed people tend to overlook. So why the reason why you have a lot of myths and uh, roles, and I can see why Verda objects to that, because it is a part of the mythology to draw roles that aren't really uh, honest, is that you can't afford to see a person as an equal or a human being even if you're going to continue to oppress them. Mm -hmm. So you build myths about your oppressors and you build myths about the people you oppress. And you, you make the women seem to be oversexed because they have children. But at the same time, you're driving the men out of the home because if the men are in the home unable to get jobs, the women can't get welfare. So you got a hustler like Moynihan that comes in and pretends to have a whole lot of insight 
when in fact all he's doing is blaming black people for what white people did from the moment they came over as slaves. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that the white people did was to make studs out of the black people, mm -hmm. sep uh, the black men, separate the women from the men, let the white men have them at will, then you wonder why it is that it seems that some girls don't mind have chil having children out of wedlock. They were programmed to do that historically. And the welfare system perpetuates this this attitude and, and process because many times if a man cannot get a proper job, he must leave his family. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think one, one thing that, that white people can't possibly conceive of is what it's what Negro family like life is is like quite apart from Moynihan, you know, who's really irrelevant. Uh, in the sense that when one belongs to an oppressed group, uh, and one is in, let us say, the family unit, uh, one is, regardless of of one's role, one is forced into a kind of partnership with his partner that family life with unoppressed people may not experience. That is to say, when one is black, one's in a family, one faces straight on the question of, of survival. When one is white in a family, family life may, may mean, mean something else. A woman may have a kind of, of, uh, of uh, a comfortable stereotyped role, uh, stereotyped through, through the ages of Western civilization, the man has another stereotyped role. We, know, we all know what these, these roles are. Uh, the moment we take that same unit and we put it in the, the, uh, the and we talk about it in terms of oppressed people, we, we're talking about a different kind of unit altogether. I think that white people, when they think about Negro families, probably don't think about, probably don't think about family life at all. And they certainly don't conceive of a situation where uh, woman and man thrown in a, an extraordinary uh, conflict for survival have to redefine family life, well, redefine uh, the family organization, uh, work together in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a strange way relative to uh, What, what may values. be fundamentally different about this this uh, family uh, that you're referring to, well, I think that it which, which will which will call upon either uh, great strengths on the part of the woman involved. Verda, do you want to talk about this at all? Or? Well, in my neighborhood, um, what's difficult about being a black mother is <laughs> being black. Being a mother, that's very difficult. <laughs> it is. Children that I got, but uh, <laughs> they were born at ninety. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of old women, you know, having one old woman in the third, in the second grade, and one old lady in the kindergarten who's on probation, head start dropout. Mm -hmm. But I have problems like that, and one of the other problems I noticed is the principal called me and said that I should come to the school because my daughter, my kindergarten daughter, was not performing according to. Hoyle or somebody like that would. Uh, so I went up, and one of the things I realized, he was, he had threatened her. He said, if you're not good, I will tell your mother. Now, I remember when I was in school, if the principal said that, and he said he was going to call your mother, and, you're, and you were black, 
When my mother got to school, the first thing she said to the principal was, you just do what you want to do with her. I've been, oh, my mother and father were very different. No, well, you I'll see, tell you about yeah, it. Yeah, well, this is, but I mean, this is really, my my mother, this is sort of, I think, traditionally black. They said, well, I, I've tried to do what I can do yeah, with it's her. all yours. Right. It's all yours. Whatever y'all want to do, y'all just do it. I try to teach you. What if y'all have to do this and blah, 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 you go ahead and do it. So I went to school, and he told me what had happened, and I said, oh, really? Is that what happened? I said, gee. He said, well, your attitude isn't right. But don't you think when we talk publicly, we sometimes romanticize the family unit? Isn't it a fact that because of economic circumstances and for excellent reasons, a lot of black women have walked away from their kids and have sent their kids back home and are have other people caring for their children. I doubt if we could name ten mothers without thinking of at least one or two who have had to possibly send their kids home. Well, I certainly, maybe it's because I'm in law practice, know of any number of women who are who have their kids either with grandparents or who are living alone and who have the kids living with aunts and uncles. And so I think it's perfectly possible to draw a picture of a family unit where there's all this love and understanding, but really ignoring the fact that there are a lot of people, uh, Eleanor, I'm sure you know a lot of them, who are really unfortunately having to walk away from their kids. And not that I don't understand why. I don't know mm -hmm. how many, as many mothers as do stay with them because I find that children are among the more horrendous uh, creatures of, of the world. <laughs> but uh, I really admire these uh, girls that stay with these kids. <laughs> but, uh, but there are just an awful lot of children being reared by people other than their parents, I think. And I think the economic situation has a lot to do with it. I mean, an older woman can't get a job, so she can stay home and take care of the children. And if she doesn't live in the metropolitan area where so many women are, well, then they but often send them away. Isn't that percentage less than it is for white people? No, I think not. No, oh, I, I think no. definitely so. I think so. I think so. I think white people give up their children much quicker. And it may only be economics. Than, than black women, white women, to me. I mean, well, I think one of the reasons a lot of white women who are separated or divorced or, or weren't ever married don't give up their children is in the first place they tend to adopt children if they're not in a position to keep them. Now, in that sense, you're absolutely right. I think many, many, I think the, the kids that are called Negro in the adoption agencies are usually the children, uh, or many times, are the children of white people, white women with black men. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, I think it's a racist concept that they become black just because one of the parents is black. Mm -hmm. So they talk about Negro foundlings, and I do think that black women don't give up their babies at birth. And certainly if you count in that, cr that group of kids, then you would have a lot mm -hmm. of white women giving up their children. But they give them up at birth. Whereas black women, I think, probably more frequently, just judging from my limited uh, notice of it, uh, would seem to keep their children theoretically, but it, when at the age of three or five or eight they can't get a job, don't find welfare satisfactory or for some reason or another can't get on welfare or feel they can manage if they can just get the kid to someone that will mm. keep them, then I think they tend to deposit them in various places. But I think, Verda, you're absolutely right that if you take into account the number of white mothers who abandon their children at birth, then, of course, I think you have a much, much larger number. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion recently uh, of the uh, revolution within American society of the female. Uh, she's uh, holding jobs she never held before, and uh, she's become name one. Uh, <laughs> may I? Uh, <laughs> she's uh, she's become uh, 
sought after by political candidates as a as a very significant uh, block vote, uh, but very fundamentally uh, connected with this assumed revolution is uh, the pill. And I'm wondering if uh, if there is any meaning uh, concerning this invention that has to do with black women that just hasn't been uh, talked about. Uh, does it does it apply the same, in other words, as a as a convenience for uh, black women as opposed to white women, Eleanor? Well, yeah, you know, I think the pill is seen in, in society at large as a liberating factor for mm. for women. It is it is liberated women from the age old biological dependency that that comes from from getting pregnant when you don't want to get pregnant. I think it's unfortunate that the pill has not, as yet, in my opinion at least, had the effect in the black community that I think it ultimately that it's had in the white community and that it ultimately will have. I don't I don't understand one thing I really don't understand is the notion that uh black women somehow uh that it's revolutionary for black women to to uh continue to have as many children as as their health will allow them to bear which uh while uh other women are going in exactly the opposite direction. I I think the 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 pill can transform life in any country for, for any group of people, but what it can can do for women who belong to an oppressed group tied and bound economically, for whom childbirth with all its joys has also had its, 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 its sorrows in, in greater proportion than it has had for, for white women, is, I think, uh, potentially astounding. Uh, the notion of planned births for black women, it seems to me, is far more revolutionary concept than it is for white women. White women have been, one way or the other, controlling their birthing, sometimes imperfectly, before the pill. Uh, uh, black women, uh, for black women, it was, was often a, a case of, of, of getting toward middle class status before one even incorporated that notion. The pill, however, is increasingly being manufactured cheaper and cheaper, which means that you finally have the possibility, in this country at least, that this liberating little little uh, pharmaceutical miracle may make it possible for black women to do their thing their own way. Now, I don't think that has anything to do with whether or not one wants to bear 15 children or one wants to bear no children. The important thing, it seems to me, is that decision-making be introduced for childbearing in the, in the black community. Not that black children be no longer produced, but that somehow a black woman not be a bi biological slave to her uterus. Mm. I don't want to eliminate her uterus. Uh, uh, you know, and 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 I, and I, but I do want her to be able to make the decision along with, with whatever mate she uh, is dealing with, uh, about that terribly crucial factor of of when she's going to have children and how many children she's going to have. And once she's able to make that decision, it seems to me a thousand other kinds of decisions mm -hmm. are going to be influenced by. Peachy, do do many women you know in Brownsville? Use the pill. Yes, practically, practically all the women I know use the pill. I use it myself. I think it's a lifesaver. 
most of the women they don't use it because they're afraid to use it. They hear they hear so many different things about it. But me, I've been taking it for oh, about a year and a half now. So far, it hasn't done anything to me. I live everything by bad it. to you. <laughs> no, anything bad that is. I live by it. I never forget to take it. How how important has it been to you? Oh, it's very important mm. to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a very important militant attitude among black militants that the pill is uh, is a trick, really, uh, and it's an aspect of of genocide. That uh, if we do not have children. We will be less than we are now in time to come. And that if we send our sons to the war in Vietnam, we'll be, we'll be less than we are now. Those are two different methods of genocide, though. Uh, <laughs> there are many, I guess. I don't equate the two at all. I think well, Berta wanted to say something. Yes. No, I wanted Berta, to say a lot. <laughs> I wanted to say, although I, I, on one hand, I, I understand what you mean by the pill is a lifesaver. And, but I really don't think at this time, I figure, this is my own personal theory, I figure that if we have come through 350 or 400 years of misery, there's no reason at this point for us now to orientate our people they're going to have a nice happy life by laying down and you won't have babies and enjoying your uterus. If we've gone through that, we might as well continue to... You mean if we've, been, if we've been miserable for 300 years, we just won't be miserable that for another Until something is won. That's right. Because, I mean, why should we orientate... I do not think that we should orientate black people to this two child, one girl, one boy type of Americana family. Bobby Kennedy does How not many children have do you have, children. Brother? I only have two. Okay. I only been pregnant twice. Yeah. You know, see, see. Yeah, I understand that. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying. No, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I can. That you know, I'm not saying I can't. I understand what I understand what you mean. I know that you know it ain't. Well, are you against the pill? Are you against family? No, I'm against orientating our people toward it is it's a pleasant thing. Because if they are going to Vietnam, if they are being lynched, if they are being shot in the streets, and we are talking about the future of our people, we are not going to have very many people left. You know, what I'm against is it seems to me that the orientation is if you have enough money, you therefore have the license to have more children. Well, who has enough money? Well, you Only see, people who have these uh, money and these, these certain kinds of jobs. How do you get those jobs from various means? Also, we are in the richest country in the world. Right. We should be, everybody should be born with the with uh, a place to live and enough to eat. There should be no reason why if you have five children, you can't feed them in this rich country. The and one man have five if one man has 50, there's no reason for one man to have $10 million and some people be starving. But and then say that them people don't have right to have children. We should have as many children if we want a nation. Nobody's talking about right the right children. to have children. We're talking about as the a mother of two children, well, darling. Let us I must say you've been very lucky or else. <laughs> very abstinent. But let me simply say this, dear, that if you're going to get that money and change the system, you might just have to do some running and hiding, you understand? And it's a little hard to run and hide, you know, and fight for that share of the pie. And if you can't end the corruption, get in on it, you know. 
if you got four or five kids hanging around. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. we have never had that kind of All right, thing. Now, so so I then, say let's just have let's just see how it works like that. Right. We've had these three hundred and fifty years of other kind of things. You've let's got see how it kids, is. And I still but say it doesn't have to be about me. No, I say we, let's not orientate our people your to Americana inconsistent with your circumstances. Your passion for people having a whole passel of children. I didn't say a whole passel of children. So what I'm suggesting there is that if we are truly revolutionary, it seems to me that some of us at least might want to travel light. (laughs) (laughs) And it may be that if women are going to have to go to jail, because I tell you one thing about oppression, you might be all right as long as you stay near the middle of the area. Mm -hmm. But when you start testing the fence, honey, whether you're black, white, woman, or man, you become instantly niggerized. You see, and one of the reasons why black women may find that some of their revolution won't even have to take place is because the youth is learning this. And with an alliance between black people and youth, the women may be able to be third in the line in the revolution if there should be one. But I promise you that I sometimes suspect that the CIA is programming black nationalists to talk like this because if I had a group that was about to withdraw consent to oppression... I would like nothing better than that they should be bogged down in a big family setup with little kids to run back home to, you know, and keep, you know, getting sitters for. And I promise you that in India, which is a poverty-stricken, distraught land in many respects, this whole idea of proving your manhood by producing children prevails. Now, in a country which is so committed to fascism and racism that there's no likelihood that you're ever going to get that fair share of the pie that you're talking, you're talking about. about. This, you're talking about this country? What other? What <laughs> other, baby? Which is the most fascist genocidal. All right, then. So in such a country, it would seem to me that it might be well for at least those people who have a political awareness to consider foregoing this luxury that you talk about, and I don't see that Peachy, who has had that great experience, would agree with you. I, I, get, I gather that she might love each one of her five children and yet be glad that the number isn't seven. That's right. And from the way I've seen you with Chandra and uh, and the little queen, I think there are times when you're very delighted that you have two instead of three. Oh, you know, to have to to arrange for when you want to go someplace. But what I really said was I just don't think that we ought to orientate in terms of this whole pillar. Are you suggesting that just because white people have finally made this available to us, you know, this reminds me of the guy on the subway that has a a roach or bed bug on his shoulder and some white man knocks it off and he says, you. Welcome back. And uh, that was um, excerpts from a discussion uh, over the radio, in fact, in 1968 in New York City on uh, the role of uh, black women in the United States. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. And uh, we will, of course, uh, be back uh, with additional programming. Uh, If you'd like to uh, have access to today's program, all you have to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the illustrious uh, pianist Mary Lou Williams uh, from her album Zodiac Suite. This is our Bayomi Azikawe signing off and have 
a beautiful week.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.